running is significant. It's a sport which is so close to the something absolutely essential in human life, you know, something essential to survival and to health. Therefore, its stories are significant for society and for individual humans. And, and just ask any runner, how important is your running? And, and they'll tell you. And that's, in a way, those are the people I'm wanting to write for, because I'm wanting to say, well, here are stories which are significant. They've always been around, but nobody's ever taken the trouble to get them right before. I really have tried to do that. And when I couldn't get it right, I've said so. Hello and welcome back to The Big Run. Today's guest is a returning one. I'm delighted to welcome back for the second time on the podcast, Roger Robinson. Roger is a runner, writer and academic scholar and a very successful runner as well. He's won several national and world masters titles and still to this day at the age of 83 is competing in track and cross country events. Most recently at the World Cross Country Championships in Bathurst, where at the age of 83 and on two replaced knees and after years of dedicated training, he took the 80 plus age group World Cross Country Championships title like a 30 year old, to quote his wife, celebrated runner, Catherine Switzer. He's also been busy putting together his brand new book. It's called Running Throughout Time, and it's a collection of the greatest running stories ever told, going all the way from 800 BC to 2021. In this conversation, we talk about Roger's continuing dedication to his love of running, some of the fantastic stories from the book, a philosophical discussion with Eliud Kipchoge, and so much more. Let's get into the interview. So, Roger, thank you so much for, for joining us again on, on The Big Run. Really excited to, to have you on and to talk all about your new book, Running Throughout Time. But we've got to start with running first, I feel. And, you know, recently you've been you've been on the track. You've been tearing it up, 3,000 metres and a recent 5,000 metres as well. And I think for for maybe older listeners of the, of the podcast, I think you're a bit of a, an inspiration because last time I spoke, I think you were sort of just coming back from a from a bit of an injury and obviously you've had you've had both your your knees replaced and renamed as well uh, we talked about that last time on the on the podcast i mean it, it's it's an incredible inspiration for for me as well i mean how how is the how is the running at the moment and 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 how are you enjoying it in in this sort of the later stages of of your life as a runner well daddy tr- track running at the age of 83 is 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 a strange dual experience <laughs> because i am of course e- even though i'm not running against the very younger runners i'm running against other masters you know say from 45 or 50 up but they're in a completely different league you know they're just gone at the start of the race and so i'm very quickly dead last and being lapped by everybody in the field and i'm so i'm so and, and there's and there's a bit of a crowd there and so i'm suffering being dead last and and being lapped Every runner's worst nightmare. It's the kind of thing that we, you know, that we we lie awake at night and sweat and and, and imagine that this this terrible thing might happen to. But at the same time, I'm still enjoying it, and I'm still getting satisfaction of working against my own times. I wish there were some other over eighties. I wish there was some sort of competition, but I have I I don't have that at the minute. Some over seventies who I can maybe hold sometimes but i i kind of set myself targets like records and so in a way i'm conducting a virtual race like in the like in covid times mm. against the guys who ran in wellington new zealand 20 years ago 30 years ago uh and trying to get their times and 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 that's that gives fun 
Um, and I've actually, over the last year, I've, I've just kept on improving, kept on improving. It's this, the same thing always applies in, a, in, in running. If you do the work, you will improve, at least until you get injured and, and then you go backwards again. But that's the philosophy of every runner is, is I can improve if I work hard enough. And so I'm still doing that and I'm still doing the same kind of training that I've always done. And I just somehow have to swallow my pride mm. over this coming coming last. And the younger runners, of course, are all wonderfully encouraging. And they all, as they come, as they wish past me and lap me, they say, go, Rog. Uh, and, 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 and then afterwards they say, you're an inspiration. And, and I, I don't know whether I'm an inspiration or, or whether I'm like the, the, the decrepit old dog who, who gets a pat because he still tries to chase his ball. You know, that's, I feel like I'm almost like a mascot. <laughs> the, oh, I think you're being, I think that, that's, that's far too unkind. I think you, I think definitely an inspiration. Cause I think when, whenever anyone asks me about what the kind of the ultimate goal is for sort of my running, like PBs are great, but PBs kind of come and go. And I always feel like the ultimate goal is longevity to continue to do this thing that that I love and people who listen to this podcast love for as long as kind of humanly possible, as long as the kind of the body allows. So I think it's it's great to hear stories of people such as yourself still towing the line in in track races. I think it's really yeah, encouraging. Well, I'd, I'd agree with that. And one or two other things for for older listeners, um, people will say if you want the longevity, then then don't go too extreme. You know, don't don't push yourself over the edge. I, I don't I, I totally accept that that's probably true for the majority of people. Uh, I still want to be competitive and which means competing against myself and trying to improve. So I'm prepared to do any amount of work to try and do that and do in, interval training and, and, and long runs. And I go out and do a session of 16 by two minutes fast and uh, uh, repetition miles and things like that. And then at the end of the race, uh, quite often the um the Red Cross uh, come come running over because <laughs> or the St John's ambulance because they see this old man gasping and staggering about and their day is made and they come running over with the, with the, <laughs> with the stretches <laughs> and they say are you all right sir that's always a giveaway <laughs> um, but in fact I just say yes I've sounded like this after every race for the last seventy years <laughs> which is true because I'm still wheezing and gasping and pushing on the last lap just just like I always have and I'm not convinced that at this age there's anything wrong with pushing to extreme i just want to say people say don't don't do don't push to extreme tiredness i just want to say well why not mm. you know what exactly will happen to my heart or or whatever else you know why when it's done it all all, all my life why should it choose now to to go wrong and i will just keep pushing until something does go wrong mm. so that i enjoy that i just enjoy the um pushing to the limit and competing as hard as i can i i wonder whether i don't know whether you've done this or not but i wonder whether if there was to do if you were to do like a kind of a a sort of a health mot to see whether all of your years of running whether you, or not you had the the kind of uh the heart of someone younger than you because of all of the, the sort of exercise that you've done like i mean do, do doctor have doctors kind of taken stock of all of your years of running like do you have a younger man's heart because of all of it yes yes it's the short answer i have a young younger man's almost everything uh, because of the running. And we recently, I, I can guarantee that because Catherine Switzer, my wife and I were recently at the famous Cooper Clinic in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, Ken Cooper was the doctor who started the whole aerobics movement and he's still going strong at 91. And Catherine and he are old friends from early uh, the early running movement when they used to be speakers together. And he wanted her to give a speech and he gave us 
full exhaustive tests one one whole day when everything got tested you wow. know the dermatologist looked between your toes and and and, and i i broke the over there the, the clinic's over 80 record on the cardiac treadmill wow. uh, and everything got checked and certainly the heart my heart is in astonishing condition uh and there is no calcium nil zero uh and so the chance of my having a heart attack is very small so i know that now that doesn't mean you you won't something extraordinary can happen it doesn't mean you might get some other illness that nothing guarantees you against those uh but overall uh i do know that running has been hugely beneficial in every way and dr cooper believes that and, and he was the one who introduced the whole notion of preventative medicine of getting you know, doing the exercise and not getting ill rather than the medical profession concentrating entirely on curing people who've got ill. Wow. So it's an important change in thinking. And, and running, of course, and, and he's a, a, a central part of it, running has been part of this major movement of mm. actually taking the initiative and looking after our own health. Mm. Incredible, incredible story. And I feel like your story could be one, but your your own modesty probably wouldn't allow it to be included in your latest book, Running Throughout Time, adding yourself to the greatest running stories ever told. But uh, I'm sure your modesty would sort of prevent you from including yourself. But I, I, I'm not going to compete with, with Roger Bannister and Jack Lovelock <laughs> and Jesse Owens, quite right. <laughs> or even with Durando Pietri, who collapsed seven times. <laughs> but let's let, let's get into that. I mean, this this is your this is your new book that you've been working on, I imagine, for for, for some time. I mean, where where did the idea come from for you to to start collating these these running stories and putting them together and i suppose as well like the selection process i mean there's so many uh incredible stories out there historically i mean you you trace right back i mean right right back and then you know sort of move through history i mean yeah how did you sort of pick these greatest hits and collate them together for the for the book the, the selection came very very late on. These are nearly all things that I've been working on over the years. And people say, how long did it take you to write this book? And I would say, well, it's about 70 years um, because I first got interested in the history of running at the age of about 15 uh, and reading about early cross country. That's, that's what originally fascinated me because I was a cross country runner. And as a teenager, I was fascinated to find that people had run cross country way back in the 19th century. And then and they called it hare and hounds and they laid paper trails and all of that stuff. And they got lost in Epping Forest and, and wonderful stories from Thames Hare and Hounds and Shrewsbury School and, and those other places. And then all of these stories, when, when you're a runner, you go to, go to running clinics or you read running books and over and over, and you must've had this, Danny, and every runner has it. You've heard the Pheidippides story and you've heard the, the uh, Spirit on Lewis story and the Durando Pietri story uh, over and over again, almost always wrong, almost always in the 10th in the hand form. Somebody's just taken it from somebody else who took it from five other people and so on. And I, I decided to pick the most important stories and try and tell them well, because that's the most important thing is to, is to, is to make them good stories mm -hmm. because I'm, you know, I'm a writer and I'm doing this in, instead of writing novels, if you like, to, uh, tell them well, but also get them right. So it's a combination of, I hope, good storytelling and good scholarly research. And of course, the scholarly doesn't mean that I've spent my entire time sitting in dusty libraries. I've spent some time doing that. But for running research, sometimes it involves actually getting out there and doing the research out out on, on foot. Mm. Like when I was um, the, the running footman of the, of the 1700s, uh, you get you see pictures of them and everybody thinks they ran with these long staffs 
uh, and and that they at the end of the staff was a little kind of container, and they had a boiled egg and, and and some white wine or something to keep them going because they had to run all day. And I wondered, can you really run with a staff about five foot long like that? So I decided to experiment with it. <laughs> And I thought the one place where I could do this experiment and nobody would think there was anything weird would be in Central Park, New York, because that's full of really weird people. <laughs> and, and, and so a little little skinny, bald-headed man running along at seven-minute mile speed and carrying a five-foot-long tree branch was nothing unusual. So that's what I did. And, and so I did I did that kind of research as, as, as well as finding, oh, things like the record books of the Shrewsbury School hounds club as they called it the, the their their early cross-country club handwritten and dating from the 1830s and you know there i was sitting in their library and i thought no this is it right in my hand now i've mm. got a schoolboy club secretary writing his account of this week's run at a time when we didn't know that running had even started you know we all thought it started at rugby school another 10 years later well wrong it started at shrewsbury school and those records, that was a fabulous discovery to to for, for a scholar. I, I love that a, chapter. A, a I think um that, that chapter in particular, the the sort of, you know, over here in the UK, we're right sort of in the in the throes of cross country season. And we were chatting just before we started recording. My uh my club's sort of cross country WhatsApp group is forever pinging every weekend with various kind of cross country fixtures. So sort of going along with you on that journey and covering the kind of history of cross country was 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 fascinating. I mean, can you can you sort of unpack that chapter a little bit for us and your kind of uh, your kind of your journey down the rabbit hole, so to speak, to to use the sort of hare and hounds pounds to to, to unpick that. It wasn't a rabbit hole. It was a soggy ditch. <laughs> <laughs> is, is what it was. Uh, that was an interesting example of how my Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde personality came together very conveniently, mm. <clears throat> because I'm a running historian, runner and running historian. Uh, but I'm also a literary scholar, and I was working on this writer Samuel Butler because he, like me, had moved from England to New Zealand and had written about New Zealand and had written major books that are partly New Zealand books, like his like his era one. Uh, and so I was doing some research on him and went to Shrewsbury School, which is where he had gone to school. And I knew I, that that he'd done a bit of running when he was at school, but I didn't realize quite how much or how important that running was. And so it crossed, it, the two things crossed over. And I found that Shrewsbury School had, had this group that they called the Royal Shrewsbury School Hunt, or known as the Hounds. Uh, and they ran these paper chase runs uh, twice a week before Christmas. And then after Christmas, they had races that they called steeple chases, which were just like horseback steeplechases from steeple to steeple. And I've always been fascinated. I love cross country. Uh, that That's how I started running. And that's still my greatest love. And and the sadness of, of being 83 is that I can't really run cross country anymore because I don't have the flexibility. And I can run on, on, on decent grass, but I can't run rough footing or down steep hills or, or whatever, the th kind of stuff I used to love. Uh, and so I did some running as well as researching on, on that chapter. The, the wet ditch was because one day Samuel Butler was one of the hounds, which said significant thing about him because he'd always been presented, he'd presented himself in, in anything autobiographically wrote as being a bit nerdy at school and unpopular and not good at anything. Well, then I found out that in the, in the running club, he'd been often selected as the fox. Well, that means he's the one who laid the trail. 
So he had to make the decisions. He decided the whole run for that day and the foxes would be judged very much. So they had to be able to run well because they had to stay in front of the pack carrying heavy bags of paper. Uh, and they had to judge the course and they had to be inventive and they had to be mischievous. Well, one day there was this field, low lying field and across the middle of it was, was a ditch, but the ditch had flooded. And so the whole field was under about an inch or two of water, nothing significant. And so he and the other fox lay the paper trail across as if it went across the field. They laid it down to the beginning of the water and then they laid it visibly up the other side coming out of the water so that the pack all went charging across the water, splash, splash, splash across this shallow water until they got to where the ditch was and then they all fell in because it was four feet deep. <laughs> and so the, the account says the, the, the gentlemen and hounds, some head first and some tail disappeared into the water. <laughs> Uh, so I just I wanted to try and find that ditch in a completely illogical way and I tell the story quite fully in the book and, and I won't tell it now but eventually I did uh, and I think it reflects very badly on me, on me as a researcher this is one of the most exciting moments in my life as a scholarly researcher is finding this wet, wet ditch in Shropshire <laughs> <laughs> it's a great it's a lovely it's a lovely entry into the book and you tell it you tell it so beautifully in there you kind well of... and and it's it it was so good because these were people doing something that i love i mean i got a real double value from it i learned a lot about samuel butler as a personality and mm. what he could do and why as somebody presenting himself as no good at anything outdoors and just a, just a spotty mollycoddle, he describes himself, um, why he could go off to New Zealand and become a really significant uh, explorer in the South Island Mountains. Well, when you find out that he's been this tough, they, they, they'd gone out and done 10 mile runs across the Shropshire countryside, which is tough countryside, I can tell you, because I ran there that week. Uh, and there are plenty of ditches and hills and, and uh, you know, it's not easy stuff and, and soggy, soggy footing. It was, that was I was in my 60s then and, and um, I could, uh, it, was, it was tough running. Mm. So I learned a lot about Samuel Butler and I also learned a lot about the origins of the sport that I love. And in a way, because this was the first organised running in the modern world, you know, everything, the, the London Marathon, the Olympics, it always started there. It always started with these kids Mm. pretending to be uh, gentlemen on horseback chasing after the fox and two of them laying the trail as the fox. My other favourite story while I'm on that, that Danny, because uh, I, when I first got a scholarship to a school where I had to learn Latin and I hadn't got a clue what it was all about, not a single clue, it was just hopeless. Well, we studied something called Kennedy's Latin Primer. That was the key book. Well, then I discovered doing this research at Schroeder, the headmaster of the school at that time was that actual Kennedy, Benjamin Kennedy, who was a great classical scholar. And he'd published his Latin primer just about when Samuel Butler was in the school. And he, he had great fallings out with the runners because he didn't like their habits of trespassing and going into pubs and all, all those things that, that runners do. Uh, and he tried to stop them and they had a great war with him. And then he stole their scent bag and in revenge for him stealing the set bag, they got copies of his new Latin primer and tore it up and used it as the paper trail for the next week's run. And I immediately was totally on their side <laughs> and, and, and thought at last, you know, they they had committed revenge for what I suffered even before I suffered it. So. <laughs> Um, you mentioned the word origin there, and just I mean the, the 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 sort of the origin that you kind of kick the book off with at Atlanta, the founding myth for for women running. I mean, 
that story was was incredible. The kind of Greek myths uh, generally are always so so wild when you hear the sort of stories unfold. But why did you choose to to start the book with that particular story? And maybe if you could give a little bit of an overview for that story because it is an extraordinary kind of myth to to begin the book with. Yeah. Well, one one problem with writing running history now, when at least half the runners that you're writing for are women, one problem with writing the history is that the history doesn't have much about women. We've, we all know the supposed beginnings of the marathon with Pheidippides. And it seemed to me that I needed to get back even further before Pheidippides and tell this story, which is in a way a foundation myth for women's running. And this is the story of, of Atalanta. And there are basically two main stories. And, and I, I say in the book that you, you shouldn't ever believe that there is an actual origin to Greek myths, because they were actually a whole variety of different oral stories that tended to get pulled together much later. Uh, but the two main stories, one, she's the great huntress. She, she was abandoned by her father, brought up by a bear in the forest, and the bear may have been the goddess Artemis. And she became the great huntress and an absolute dead shot archer and killed uh, the, the giant boar in a, in a, in a, in a boar hunt that, that, she, that she was on. She shot the first uh, arrow to go home. Um, and then the other story is Atalanta, the runner, uh, who would only marry a man who could beat her in the foot race. And eventually one got really smart and he went and asked the goddess uh, Aphrodite, the goddess of love, uh, for, for some advice. I quite like that. You, know, go, <laughs> you, don't, you don't go to you know, some grotty old running, running coach, you go to the goddess Aphrodite. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and she gave him three golden apples and told him to drop them during the race and, and that Atalanta would, would give up time to pick up the apples, as, as she did. Uh, and it's a wonderful story. And, and it's, it's been gone through many, many different forms over the years in, in literature and, and in early radio and, and uh, TV versions and so on. Uh, but it's the great story, and it's really a love story. That's how I try and tell it. And maybe I'm just a great old romantic. Uh, but as the story is told in most versions, she's not really carried away by the bling. It's not the gold. You know, Aphrodite is not, is not the goddess of, of gold or the goddess of wealth or the goddess of glitter. She's the goddess of love. Uh, and Atalanta chooses not to win that race because at last she fancies this particular runner. He's, he's got two names, which makes things even more complicated. Sometimes he's Hippomenes and sometimes he's Melanian. And I chose to call him Melanian partly because it's easier to, to read and say. Uh, and he's the one who dropped the apples and they go off at the end of the race hand in hand. It's a, and it's a lovely ending. That, that and there's one this lovely moment in the race when it says she looked at him and languished on his face in one early translation uh and then with reluctant heart pursued the race uh, so she didn't really want to beat him because she likes the look of him so much so much she fa she fancies him about him so it's a nice story in uh, in its variety, in its significance, uh, in its environmentalism, because she's the great, she's closely related to the nature goddess, uh, and she's brought up in the forest, and she's really good at, at at hunting and and working with the deer and things like that, and and at running. Uh, but then it's also a very human love story. Mm, it's so so that so that's a nice one. And then I had the idea at the end of the book. Um, it was a, I originally had it ended 
at the Joan Benoit 1984 First Olympic Women's Marathon. Uh, and I felt it was it was a bit short. It needed something else. And then I had the th had the thought I'd written several times over the years about Alison Rowe, the great New Zealand runner from the 1980s, who's also a personal friend. And we were on a New Zealand team together. And, you know, we've known each other over the last 50 years. Uh, and I thought, well, Alison has actually never written her own book. All the others have, you know, Joan Benoit, Greta Weitz, Lorraine Moller and Ordain and so on. They've all done their own books. Alison hadn't. Uh, and so I thought, well, I think I could tell her story to kind of compensate for the fact that there's not a book out there. And then it was that was so interesting from the point of view of trying to say what running does for women, for feminism, if you like. Um, because Alison is, I, I argued, and I think it's very convincing, is like an Atalanta figure mm. in that she's not just dishy in a, in a passive inactive she's immensely attractive because she's so strong and graceful in motion mm. and atalanta was like that the name atalanta actually means balanced uh, and i think that running had a real place in establishing women as permitted if you like to do something strenuous physically to to excel but to excel with effort uh, which was something that only men had were supposed to do. And then that can take us back into another story, if you like. When the women's 800 metres was put into the Olympics for the first time, and I'm cutting the story very short here, uh, and according to ev every newspaper report from both sides of the Atlantic in the English language, English newspapers, New York, um, American newspapers, half the women dropped out of the race and never finished, and most of the others collapsed at the finish from total exhaustion and it was all very embarrassing and women were behaving in a way that was was very uncomfortable to watch and was very dangerous to their health and a few days later there was a meeting about it and that event was struck from the olympics and didn't come back into the olympics until 1960 uh, so that race changed mm. the history of women's running and it was all fake news mm. and I, I, did, I did the research to show certainly some of them fell over at the end of the race but so do lots of us. You know, <laughs> lots of us fall over at the, yes. at, the, at, the end, at the end of races. We really stuff. Uh, and one interesting comparison is that at those same Olympics in the 5,000 meters, the, the runner finishing in second place in the 5,000 meters fell to the infield just like those women did and lay there panting. That was Pavo Nurmi, you know, the greatest athlete in the whole history of Olympic distance running. Being finishing that time only second instead of first for once. Well, nobody proposed that the men's 5,000 meters should be cut from the Olympics because it was so embarrassing to see Pavel Nurmi lying there exhausted. He was just tired. But, <laughs> and, and, the, and these days, it's such, such a nonsense because these days we have this new convention where they all lie down after the race and then the television camera goes around and explores them and we all get kind of close up friendly mm. with them we see them close up we see their interactions and we see those who like each other and those who don't like each other and, and we're kind of we're right in there and it's become almost a tv convention now mm. well at that time women were not supposed to look as if they were as if they were tired and I, there's one, one one wonderful phrase it was the daily mail and this just sticks in my head as to what <laughs> male writers wanted women to look like and it said before the race the competitors skipped daintily into the infield well as i said in the book 
I've been around women's running now for something like 60 or 70 years, and I'm a great admirer of women runners, but I've never seen any skip daintily into the field. <laughs> That's just not what they do. You know, they're, they're coming for a race. And so they slouch or they jog or they or they or they stride or whatever they don't skip down to and that's the kind of expectation it's just that infantile all all of those things which is the the stereotype that was being imposed on them mm. it's an absolute disgraceful episode in the history of journalism uh people have to read it to see my i can't i, I can't explain it but to see the different ideas that i offer as to, as to what caused it uh why there was such a consensus between the male journalists what the kind of subconscious motivations were uh, but anyway, basically, it was a society trying to impose a particular view of femininity. And, you know, we, we sort of chuckle, you know, about some of the, the sort of terminology and descriptions sort of used back then because it seems so kind of alien. But I think what's so lovely about how you tell it in the book is it's important to sort of remind and sort of relive those incidences just to sort of remind ourselves about how far we've come but like how it wasn't that long ago when it was it was like widely considered the the norm and i think um it's it's brilliant sort of sort of how you tell it and um, i mean you you're kind of giving us a, a a few selections of some of the incredible stories in the book and and rightly so you're conflating them in in this interview because you tell them in such wondrous detail in the book and i I couldn't I encourage people more to 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 pick up a copy because I just think it's it's lovely. I mean, just from my own personal experience, just coming back from Valencia Marathon, legs a bit battered, a little bit injured, kind of a little bit disappointed with my my race, and just flicking through this book, there's so much kind of inspiration to be drawn from so many of these stories that it's like a real kind of. Uh, galvanizing read perhaps if you're uh looking for some sort of inspiration to sort of continue with your your running journey and to go from what 800 bc to you know to 2021 there's so many kind of stories to to sort of choose from but you know we are coming to the end of 2022 and just from from your own personal sort of uh experience of this year looking back at the year that we've just had i mean are there any stories from this year that you think may be included in a in a sequel to running throughout time any any stories that have really piqued your interest that you think could be ones to to reflect back on in in a few years from now Eliud Kipchoge is is clearly the greatest runner that the world has ever seen you know they've, they've been great runners and it's hard to compare people from different generations uh with uh, you know, Nurmi and Zatopek and and Abebe Bikila uh but uh Elliot Kipchoge can can do everything. You know, he can he can win any any way. He can run fast times, and he's kept going now for over twenty years. And it's an absolutely astonishing career, and a fascinating man, a really interesting man. So, uh, I I won't be able to write about him in detail. I, I think because I don't know him well enough. But but at one uh, the press conference before the Berlin Marathon one year, um, he and I got into a conversation about Greek philosophy, because. <laughs> I'd, I'd read i'd read that he that he reads he read greek philosophy we started talking talking about plato and the other journalists began to get a bit grumpy at that point so so we, <laughs> we had, to, had to cut it short uh, but kipchoge is a man with 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 great depth and he he is one of the great stories of of the whole history of running but my my belief that in a way illustrates my main belief, which is that running is significant. It's um it's it's a sport which is so close to the something absolutely essential in human life, you know, something essential to survival and to health, 
that it's not it's it's kind of much more than tennis or golf or or or, or a sport which is more artificial uh, and running therefore its stories are are significant for society and for individual humans and, and just ask any runner how important is your running and and they will they'll tell you and that's in a way those are the people i'm wanting to write for because i'm wanting to say well here are stories which are significant they've always been around but nobody's ever taken the trouble to get them right before i really have tried to do that and when i couldn't get it right i've said so uh and when i needed uh some interviews with with eyewitnesses, like with the Pheidippides story of, of the, the runner running to to Athens, I made them up, and I said that I said I said there are no eyewitness interviews, but this is what this is what the evidence should have been, and that was a kind of little exercise in fiction. <laughs> no, it's lovely. It really is, and I think that word significance and uh, is is really kind of apt. I think, and I think for for runners, like you say, it is something deeply deeply important to them. So to have that kind of um sentiment echoed in the stories that you share is is really lovely and oh to have been the fly on the wall for a longer conversation between you and kipchoge about greek philosophy that is the, <laughs> i feel like that's a that's an imagined play almost like a two-man play that i feel like you should you should maybe write and we'll we'll see it on the on the london stage in, in years to come uh, roger uh, and kipchoge we, we, we need tom, tom stoppard to write the script <laughs> <laughs> tom tom if you're listening there we go we've got a new commission for for you um yeah i will we'll, uh will i'll play you roger and we'll we'll find someone to play kipchoge and uh we'll we'll, we'll get it up on the london stage but um <laughs> sounds good uh but thank you so much for for your time i'm conscious that it's 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 later where you are uh thousands and thousands of miles away in new zealand but i i cannot recommend uh roger's book enough there's so much sort of inspiration wonder and revelation to be found within its pages some of the stories are are incredible and yeah the detail and care with which you tell them is is extraordinary so I can't recommend it enough. And thank you so much for, for rejoining us. It's lovely to have guests return to the podcast. So thank you so much for coming on and being such a, a brilliant guest on The Big Run, Roger. Well, and thank you for being such a brilliant host, Danny, and and, and, and for, ha for having me on and, and for the, everything you do with the, with the podcast. It's important that running does build its own culture, which is what people like you are doing. A big thank you to Roger for coming on. If you want to check out Running Throughout Time, I'll put a link where you can find and purchase the book. It's a really extraordinary read. And like I say, just so much knowledge, inspiration and motivation to be drawn from its pages. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode and are continuing to enjoy The Big Run, then leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps the show. And I'll see you next time for The Big Run.